This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I imagine a storyteller facing his audience and asking, where shall I begin? I could begin at the beginning, but the beginning was a very long time ago. If I begin there, we could be here all day. I could begin at the end, but I don't know the end. I don't know where the story ends. So I guess I have to begin in the middle, which is where we find ourselves now. And I'm thinking of how we tell the story of Zen, where we've been, where we are, where we're going. And it occurred to me that, in general, Zen, like most religions, likes to spend most of its time talking about where it's been. Describing its origins, its foundation myths, the paradigmatic teachers and teachings on which it was founded. And as it thinks about the present and future, most of the time, it's content to hope for more of the same. Might contrast this in general with politics, which in most of its forms is preoccupied with the future rather than the past, asking how can existing social structures and power structures be changed for the better? What are we going to do next? Now, when we think about the history of Zen and our place in it, the old story, the old way of talking about our history doesn't work so well anymore because whatever we're doing these days, it's not easy to say it's just more of the same. Something pretty different is happening. And depending on your point of view, you can describe this as for better or for worse. Mark and I have been engaged in writing something together for a book on the relationship between Zen and the mindfulness movement. And 
There you have a case of something that is very different, that is um, a kind of new development that's very forward-looking, not reproducing old structures of the past. And we wonder, is that where we're headed? Is this a good thing? And I've been writing about it in terms of some broad trends in Buddhism in America, which I summed up with three words, deracination, which means things being cut off from their roots, secularization, the grounding of the practice in a lay environment rather than a uh, having it in the hands of an ordained priesthood and instrumentalization in which increasingly practice is understood in terms of its benefits whether for health or well-being, mental health, stress reduction, and so forth. And what Mark and I were writing about is the way that mindfulness seems to be something that has taken all three of these trends and taken them to a certain logical or illogical conclusion. Yet we ourselves are someplace in the middle of those very same processes. Now we've in many ways cut ourselves off from our Asian roots. We practice in a center that is not a temple. It does not have a priest in charge. You are not all ordained monks. And there is a kind of merging of what happens in our practice with what happens in many forms of therapy, or at least our way of thinking about practice is very psychologically minded. So are we part of the problem or part of the solution? I came across a very interesting article by a Canadian scholar, Victor Horry, uh, who pretty clearly thinks we're part of the problem. Uh, It's an interesting perspective. Uh, The article was about uh, Buddhist uh, monasticism in Canada and the issue of celibacy and problems of sexual misconduct. And uh, Hori was someone who himself was trained for many years, probably a couple decades, in a uh, Japanese Rinzai monastery before leaving and becoming an academic. And uh, a very impressive, erudite man. I had the 
pleasure of meeting him once at a uh, AZTA meeting uh, where he gave a presentation to the assembled Zen teachers about um, the transmission and criteria for transmission in uh, the Rinzai tradition uh, that he practiced in, in Japan and how they maintained a uh, model that uh, transmission meant that the mind of the student was identical to the mind of the t teacher back to Shakyamuni Buddha, so that realization was to affirm the, the new teacher had an enlightenment equivalent to that of Buddha. And uh, this was a... Um, as he put it, a very high bar, and um, he showed a uh, chart of transmission of, in Rinzai, Japan, where there were just a very, it's a very small number of teachers who ever actually received full Dharma transmission in the entire 20th century in uh, Japan. And then he put up a chart next to it of um, uh, a lineage chart of... Um, Bernie Glassman and his <laughs> Dharma successors. And uh, Bernie had had more Dharma successors in the period of 15 years than had occurred in all of Japan in the last hundred. Uh, and he thought this, you know, evidently spoke for itself. Um, I raised my hand and commented on how fortunate we were that enlightenment was so much more prevalent in America than Japan. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine how well he appreciated that. <laughs> in any case, uh, Hori's uh, article uh, Uh, which he opens up by recounting uh, the now very familiar stories of all the sexual scandals that have roiled various Zen communities in North America. He basically says, you know, the problem, this is a problem we never had in Japan, is basically what he said. And the reason is that we have monasteries with single-sex celibate monks. Uh, and in those situations, um, the problems that you people have simply don't arise uh, because we have a very elite group of monks who are, for whom the practice uh, of the precepts and the uh, uh, meditation practice are inseparable. Uh, we don't have power problems because... We have uh, great horizontal support systems from monks to monks that provide uh, a great deal of peer support, and we don't have the uh, submission to the absolute authority of the teacher the way you do in America, even though this teacher is the incarnation of Shakyamuni Buddha. We don't uh, you know, treat him as an absolute authority. Um, in any case, he said, uh, by and large, we had a pretty good system going here, and you guys screwed it up. And the, the main thing he says that screwed it up was the invention of something called a meditation center. Uh, 
And meditation centers are groups of people, lay people, coming together to practice, men and women together, uh, supervised by a teacher who is who's not necessarily ordained. Uh, maybe there's a resident, but that resident's not necessarily a priest. So what do you expect? <laughs> it's basically his, uh, his attitude. Uh, and he says that it, given the existence of this kind of uh, illegitimate hybrid form, the meditation center, uh, relations between student and teachers now are no different between uh, what you found in uh, the Catholic Church with uh, pedophile priests and, uh, uh, and boys There's, uh, and therapists and uh, sleeping with their patients and Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Uh, they're all simply power relationships that are easily abused. Uh, and thank God we never had that problem in Japan. And the only way you're going to get out of this mess is to restore celibate mon uh, monasticism in America as the model of practice. And thank God there are a few people who are now starting to do that and they're going to be the real thing. Uh, and I guess we can only hope that this aberration of uh, meditation centers will blow over when everyone sees it just doesn't work. Um, well, you know, he might be right. It might all blow over. A uh, hundred years from now, people might look at all this, this fad for meditation and yoga as the way we look at people who... Um, Fletcherize their food, you know, chewed it a hundred times before swallowing, you know, seemed like a good idea at the turn of the last century, right? Maybe I'll think meditation's like that, who knows? But I personally think that whether what we're doing is a good idea or not, uh, the toothpaste is not going back into the Japanese tube. <laughs> um, and <laughs> he is telling a kind of very traditional fundamental religious story about how the only thing that will um, reform the problems of the present is to return to the past, the forms of the past. Now, It's a very curious idea, and you see, I think even if it's true, we're not interested in that kind of solution, because it would be like saying, you know, the way to stop having the problem of uh, pedophile priests is to just stop having priests, you know, I mean, the real Catholicism is what, you know, Cistercians do in monasteries, and if you had you know, if Catholicism just confined itself to a celibate core of lifelong dedicated monastics, you wouldn't have all these people running around in the community making trouble, right? Well, it's certainly true. Uh, you know, 
bunch of Trappists on a mountaintop are just not going to get themselves in that much trouble, you know. And if they do, it's going to be confined to their own little community. Um, the The problem is that the broad population seems to get something out of religion and wants something from us in terms whether it's uh, a community practice or a uh, uh, like a community church or uh, something in these strange meditation centers right? it's there's something about making practice permeable to society that's basically what's at issue and um, the solution of celibate monasticism is to basically make religious practice uh, largely separate and impermeable from the daily life of people, except to the extent that priests are in the community to perform, you know, weddings and funerals. Um, we got, I guess we have to let a few of them out once in a while. Um, what we're trying to do is figure out some way in which what we do can actually go out into the world, into the lives of very many people. Now this, as we do it, even, even what we do is a pretty difficult practice that requires a fair commitment of time and effort. And so we can say it's not for everyone. Part of the problem and appeal of the mindfulness movement is that they've decided meditation should be scalable. Uh, it's something that we ought to be able to make available not to 10 or 100 or 1,000 people, but to 100,000 or a million. And we'll find a form that allows it to be spread pretty much indefinitely, whether it's through shorter periods of sitting, you know, five-minute mindfulness exercises that you can do at home, uh, workshops, things that you can do at work or at school. So that, there, you know, you know this literature in this world, there are 1,000 forms of it uh, blooming uh, out, out in the society now. And they're blooming as flowers or blooming as weeds, depending how you think about it. Right? I don't think we're going to go out there with you know, weed killer and stamp it all out. Uh, and I don't particularly think it helps to completely demonize people who do that uh, any more than I think it's helpful for Victor Hori to demonize the notion of a meditation center. Um, one way or another, the, the, this toothpaste is out of the tube. It's all spreading out in all this very strange ways. And as I said at the beginning, I uh, have no idea how this story ends. Uh, we're right in the middle. Um, but I don't think it's going to end by everybody just deciding to go back and doing it the old way. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have to think of something. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs>